Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 255 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new book Cosmic Powers, the saga anthology of faraway galaxies, edited by our producer, John Joseph Adams. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, of course, we've got John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Loosed Upon the World and What the Bleep is That? So John, welcome back. Always good to be here. Then next up, we've got Tobias Bakel, making his ninth appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowalt series of space adventure novels, the eco-thrillers Arctic Rising and Hurricane Fever, and the Halo novels The Cold Protocol and Envoy. His short story, Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance, appears in Cosmic Powers. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. And also joining us today is Becky Chambers. She's the author of the novels The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet and A Closed and Common Orbit, and her articles have appeared on Tor.com and Pornokitch.com. Her short story, The Deckhands, The Nova Blade, and The Thrice Sung Texts, appears in Cosmic Powers. So, Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Okay, and so, Becky, since you're joining us for the first time, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? So, I think you started out in the writing world as a video game reviewer. Is that right? Um, my my public-facing writing, yes. Um, it was it was half that and half technical writing that nobody got to see. So, um, yeah, in the grand tradition of, of freelance writers everywhere, it was it was a hodgepodge of things. Um, but yeah, video games were the were the uh, the thing most people knew me from. Oh, most people being the the small handful of people reading my stuff back then. <laughs> so how how did you get into video game reviewing? Um, I I've been gaming all my life and um, just uh, just started pitching. It was just like, hey, I I do this a lot. I think I write okay. Uh, <laughs> just um, kept kept uh, you know bothering editors until somebody let me publish something. So what, where did your first video game review appear? Um, I, I was the weekly um, video game columnist at the Mary Sue between 2011 and 2014. Um, so I was primarily writing there. Um, I had a few other pieces here and there. Um, nowadays, I'm not doing any um, games journalism. Um, it's, it's gone back to being a hobby, which is, which is kind of nice. I mean, did you have any video game reviews that you were particularly proud of that you wrote? Oh gosh, um, I mean, I stopped doing it three years ago, so let me uh, let me dredge the the archives here. Um, you know, I I did more um, sort of impressions. I mean, I did some straight up reviews, but a lot of my stuff was sort of impressions of gameplay and and um, you know, just the, the the sort of really personal connection to to how games make you feel. Um, I think probably my favorite one I did was an article about um, teaching my mom to play Portal 2 and <laughs> sort of um, just uh, picking apart the uh, the things I took for granted in games, um, the learning curve I'd kind of forgotten about, and just the the joy of, of watching her figure it out and, and understand why, um, why I love this hobby so much. That's really funny. So, I mean, had you been writing fiction that whole time or kind of when did you start writing fiction? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've I've been writing fiction forever, um, but I hadn't been successful in, in getting anything published up to that point. Um, 
perhaps <laughs> perhaps not the best thing to say given the context of this podcast, but um, short stories <laughs> are something I have a lot of trouble with. Um, I don't think um, they're not they don't come as as uh, as I don't want to say easily, but as naturally to me as as um, writing long forms. So um, and there's this sort of um, this this thing right where you know before you write a book you're supposed to write short stories and so I spent a lot of years banging my head against writing short stories and not having any luck there until finally I was just like maybe I'm just supposed to write books maybe I should start there and and do it backwards so sure enough I mean I I um I got my novel out before I got um any short sh- stories published so um so my first book was the first time I'd had any any fiction out there. And you had a Kickstarter, right, to get that written? Yeah, that's right. Um, I uh, I used a Kickstarter to uh, fund my remaining months of, of writing time. I was about two-thirds of the way through the manuscript, um, and my freelance work dried up. And so it was a sort of do-or-die, um, you know – Hail Mary trying to, <laughs> trying to get that book done. And I, I told myself at the time, you know, if this isn't successful, it's a sign you need to go get a real job. <laughs> um, and to my eternal surprise, it was a success. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was the thing that, uh, kind of got the ball rolling. And those were people who had read your, your video game pieces, right? Cause you had no fiction out, right? Right. And I mean, I think the majority of people there were strangers. You know, there was a few, uh, friends and family in there too, but most of the people were, were folks I am assuming, um, who knew me from my games writing. Um, but beyond that, it just, I, I, to this day, I'm just like, wow, who were these people? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm eternally grateful. Um, but I'm assuming that's where most of them were from. Yes. And then the, the book got picked up by a traditional publisher. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, I, uh, originally self-published, um, and then, um, some months after the fact, uh, I was contacted by, um, my now publisher, Hotter and Stoughton, um, asking me if I was interested in, um, in signing on with them. And I was, <laughs> and, um, which, which brings us to now. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been kind of a crazy ride the last few years. And John was just mentioning before we started recording here that you've been nominated for different awards and things. It's all really cool. Yeah, thank you. Um, my my current book, uh, my, my my most recent book, uh, Close in Common Orbit, is currently up for um, the Hugo and the Arthur C. Clarke. So that's um, wow, that's a sentence that just came out of my mouth. <laughs> so, um, still, still feel, still pinching myself over that one. Well, right, but you know that you've really made it when you get included in a John Joseph Adams anthology, right? I mean. <laughs> Yeah. Honestly, I was so excited to get that email. I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> yes!" I, I, it was, um, I, it, it made me overcome my fear of short stories. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say that to to John when I got the email. I was just very professional, like, "Yes, of course, I'd like to contribute." And I, inwardly, I was going, "Oh my god, can I write a short story?" <laughs> apparently, I can. So. <laughs> well, no, you definitely can, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But so, John, why don't you tell us just about this anthology, Cosmic Powers? Just uh, how did how did it come about? Uh, well, it basically came about, um, it was directly inspired by my love of like the Marvel cosmic universe. Uh, so like Silver Surfer and the Infinity Gauntlet and Guardians of the Galaxy. And we talked about, uh, we talked about that a little bit before on the show. Um, but I mean, most directly, I guess it was inspired by the, 
you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy movie that came out, um, the first one that came out, uh, you know, it was a surprise hit and I just thought it was a lot of fun. And, and actually I had somehow missed Guardians of the Galaxy in comics. Like I think it was at, uh, at a period when, when no one was, when, when there was no new comics, uh, in that series coming out. Um, but the, the characters of course were around, like I was familiar with Gamora and stuff like that. But anyway, um, you know, with the, with the success of the movie, uh, I was, I, I sort of went, and delved back into um, some of these comics that I really loved, like, you know, Silver Surfer and Infinity Gauntlet and all that. And that just, it just got me thinking and thinking about um, that, that, that kind of uh, science fiction. That's like, you know, not really, it's like, it's kind of science fiction because it kind of feels like it because it takes, takes place out in space and with planets and stuff and traveling between stars and all that. But it's just like, it pushes everything past the limits of believability where it's like, um, basically fantasy, um, that that kind of stuff really kind of, uh, laid the groundwork for, um, for me as a reader. Um, and so, uh, most of the science fiction that I've read isn't, isn't along those lines, but I always loved that, um, when I encountered it in comics and I wanted to see if we could try to replicate that, uh, sort of feeling in, uh, prose. So that's why, that's, that's what inspired the, the anthology. Well, right. So talk a little bit about the process of putting it together, because it's published by Saga, um, where our good friend Joe Monty is, right? Did you just mm-hmm. email Joe and say, I got this idea for an anthology or? Um, I mean, that's kind of how it works. Uh, I mean, Joe Monty used to be my agent. So, uh, so, you know, obviously we have a pretty good uh, relationship and, and, you know, we parted amicably and everything. He, he retired from agenting to become an editor at Saga. So it was all good. Um, but, uh, this was actually a bit of an unusual situation because normally, um, I come up with an idea for an anthology and then I pitch it to a publisher and, uh, you know, I have to recruit a bunch of authors and, and then the publisher make a decision whether or not they want to do it. Uh, this one actually, I, um, I sold the two book deal to saga um so the first one was the what the bleep is that anthology that i did um that we we talked about before um and so uh but then the second book was just unspecified at the time of the sale um and then um and then you know it just how that would work is that okay so they they agreed to do the two book deal and then when i came up with the idea for cosmic powers i just did a sort of a more informal pitch uh and then uh, Joe basically had to say yes or no, and and so it was a uh, it was one of the easier books I I managed to sell because I didn't have to put together the whole full proposal and and do a bunch of recruiting ahead of the time. Um, I could just pitch it to Joe and um get him to say you know yes or no. Uh, you know because like you know uh he obviously trusts my ability as an anthologist. He knows I'm going to deliver a bunch of good authors in the book and the and the stories themselves will be good, of course. Um. So, uh, so yeah, it, it was a little bit smoother than some of my projects. Like, uh, I, I've had a couple, of, uh, I had like this one, uh, proposal recently that has like a bunch of good authors associated with it. And I think it's a good fun concept, but, um, just like nobody wants it. So, um, so that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, so it's nice when you get one of this, one, one like this where it's like kind of a slam dunk. Yeah. Okay. Well, so Toby, let's get you in here. So talk about getting this, this, uh, you know, finding out about this anthology from John kind of what was his pitch and how did you react to it? I, I love the idea. I'm the idea of just sort of larger than life science fiction epic stuff, you know, related back to the idea of trying to capture some of that essence of Guardians of the Galaxy and bring it into fiction because that's some of my favorite fiction, that sort of Star Wars epic space opera stuff. I love it. So when John came to me with the idea for the anthology, uh, there's a really interesting backstory to to the story, which was that I'd come up with a title for a short story that I wanted to write for 
gosh, I think three or four years maybe, which was the title of the story that's in the anthology, Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance. And I really jumped on the opportunity to write this because the person who helped me come up Hmm. with that title was actually uh, Christy Yant, John's significant other. I was monkeying around on Twitter with her and I think John Klima, and we were coming up with just uh, titles that we felt should exist but didn't yet. (laughs) <laughs> and they had thrown out a couple of just funny titles based on classic movies or famous pieces of works of literature with a science fictional twist. And everyone was having a good time and, and yucking it up on Twitter. And I spat out Zen in the Art of Starship Maintenance. And we sort of all got quiet for a while. And someone says, someone should write that. <laughs> and I kind of grabbed that and said, I'd like to write that actually. But I really didn't have a strong idea of what to write other than I just desperately wanted that to be a story that existed. And I was really shocked that no one else had ever taken Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and and science fictionalized the title. So that was the seed that that kind of sat in there. And then when John approached me, I thought, that sounds like a cosmic title. <laughs> any, any of the titles for any of the short story ideas I have – inside of any of my files have a cosmic title. It was Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance. So I told, I told John, like, I have this great idea that the problem for me was mainly that I was going through a two year period of some of the most intense deadlines and amount of work that I've ever gone through in my entire life. I was just slammed. And I sort of told him, like, I I really desperately want to do this, but I don't know if I have the time. So John was really, really patient about working with me on this story because it is a miracle that it even came into being, <laughs> uh, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, because I, I, I know I, intri- I invited you to be on the show a couple times, and you're, you're just like, oh, I'm too busy. I can't even do it. So, <laughs> just to give people – because I know how much you love being on this podcast. So I love being on this podcast. How busy you were. Uh, I was going to say, uh, actually, one of the one other funny thing that 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 w- I ended up with this story and this anthology based on that whole story about how the it came about because of the title. Um, I actually wrote a uh, an article for the Syphil Bulletin about uh, writing short story titles or creating short story titles, and I called it Zen and the Art of Short Story Titling. Uh, <laughs> and so, given the fact that I also riffed on the you know Zen and the Art of mo- mo- uh, Motorcycle Maintenance, and then uh, Toby came up with this title independently of the story, and then wrote the story, um, it all seems like uh, like you know cosmic uh, some sort of cosmic forces at work here uh, made this happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thought it would just be perfect to sell it to John because of that connection. I thought if I could pull that off, it's going to be a great bar story. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I saw that the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance passed away recently. Did you guys do you were you fond of that book at all or did you just like the title? Here's my deep, dark secret. I've only read a chapter of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the title. I've always loved the title. I've always meant to read it. I'm really sorry to hear he's passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it had a huge impact on so many people, and it was a highly recommended book to me by many, many people. So it's just been in my consciousness forever, and I've always meant to get around to reading it. And I, I read just a little bit of it once when I was in high school to sort of sample whether it was my sort of cup of tea. And at the time, it really wasn't, but I appreciated how much of an impact it had on people. And I just, I loved the title so much. I thought just for that alone, it was kind of a work of art all in and of itself. And it was totally worth me buying the book and, you know, sending royalties the artist's way. And I've seen so many other people riff off of that title that, you know, when it came time to write, you know, to come up with a story idea, I thought, wow, that's a real obvious one. How come no one's ever done that story? Yeah. 
I was, I was kind of curious, curious, Toby. I know you grew up on a boat in the Caribbean, and John was mentioning these Marvel comics with like Galactus and Thanos and stuff like that. Did, did were those comics um, things that you were kind of exposed to um, when you were growing up? A little bit. I mean, growing up in the Caribbean, the distribution wasn't as strong as it is here in the states, but we did have access to comics in the U.S. Virgin Islands back when we used to have grocery store racks. If anyone's old enough to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you used to be able to go to like uh, convenience stores and they'd have these spin racks with uh, comics and, and magazines in them. And so I picked up a handful of comics over the years, but it was really hit or miss. And it was really hard to follow a series because you never knew what distribution was going to send down there. I had a few friends who had some really good comic collections that I would read, but I mainly caught up on some of the base level stuff, which is like, you know, some of the core X-Men during the late eighties, early nineties, and a few other titles like that. For the most part, I didn't buy a lot of comics because I'm a really fast reader. And the comics were like, I think back then, like a buck, a buck 25 or something like that. So four comics would take me about 15 to 20 minutes of reading time. Whereas a $4 book was, you know, five hours of reading time. And so for me, the per hour <laughs> entertainment cost benefit analysis was leaned really a lot stronger towards the uh, the books. Yeah, I was kind of the same way, Toby, with the comics. But, I mean, how about Becky? Were you ever into these kinds of comics that John was talking about? You know, I didn't um, get a good introduction to comics until I was an adult. So um, my love for, for uh, crazy space stories um, is, is much more based in, in TV and film. Um, so I was, I, I tell people that I can't remember life before Star Wars and I, I literally can't. <laughs> my, <laughs> my dad, um, you know, this being the eighties, my dad had, you know, bootlegged VHS tapes um, of, of the original trilogy. And I would just watch them with him over and over and over again. Um, and this is before I could, properly form sentences i don't mean writing i mean like speaking <laughs> um, so um to say that that the idea of of space opera and and of space magic um you know it was it was a it was a hugely formative thing for me you know it it imprinted on me before you know i had the sense to not walk across the street without looking <laughs> i guess john i mean speaking of space opera john do you see this as a this anthology as a space opera anthology or do you see it as something at all different from just what space opera implies right yeah i mean it's kind of space opera but i mean i think it's more specific than that um i think when you say space opera in the modern understanding of that term um as opposed to the sort of classic one which is mostly dismissive um the modern understanding of it is uh tends to be more realistic than what's uh portrayed in this book Generally, I mean, some of the stories are probably more are more comfortably fit with the term space opera, but some of them are just sort of like they're uh, they push everything so far to the edge that it's 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 um, it's hard to call it space opera. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, a lot of people call uh, Star Wars space opera. And if, if that is, then I mean, almost anything uh, oh, you can do almost anything in a story and still be qualified still call it space opera. I mean, you know, because it's like so much unbelievable stuff happens in Star Wars that um, uh then, you know, uh, not much that happens in this book, uh, you know, really uh, goes too far past that. Although, you know, there are the couple stories that have like the, you know, the giant alien, uh, giant god heads and stuff that people walk around on. <laughs> Is this, I only have an arc of this, John, but it looks like maybe there's going to be a bibliography in the back. Are there, um, you know, books that people might know that you would say are kind of in the same vein as this anthology? 
Oh yeah, no, there's there's no bibliography or anything like that. But um, uh, let's see. I mean, yeah, I mean, my, uh, no, there aren't any like books, like like anthologies or novels that that come to mind immediately, like that that are uh, too similar to this. I mean, my you know my go tos are, are are the comics to recommend. Um, you know, obviously I, I mentioned the Infinity Gauntlet and Silver Surfer. Um, I was gonna say actually I should have mentioned earlier. Um, when was when I was talking about the inspirations, it's like uh, I actually dedicated the book to Jim Starlin, Ron Mars, and Ron Lim. Uh, and and then I called them Heralds of Wonder, like as a Silver Surfer reference. But um, that's you know, great, so, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. Like, so I I did that. And I, and I did it sort of like after the fact, like I didn't think about it go as I was building up the book, but then, um, at, at the last minute, I was like, oh, I should de- do a dedication. And I was like, oh, well, obviously I should dedicate to those guys. Um, and when I did it, uh, I just, I, you know, I, I put together the page and I sent it to, I sent it into Saga. And then I was telling Christy about it and I got all emotional talking about it, like where I didn't really think about it as being like so important to me to acknowledge these guys, uh, for the work that they had done that inspired me in this way. But, um, when I started telling her about it, I got all emotional. Um, and, uh, and so, um, so, so, so Jim Starlin and Ron Mars are two of the writers who worked on Silver Surfer back in the nineties, which is, uh, when I was reading it mostly. Uh, and then Starlin also wrote Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, I think all of them are, but at least for the most part. Um, and then Ron Lim was, uh, like the primary artist that uh, I loved from Silver Surfer. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I never had any interaction with Ron Lim or Jim Starlin, but I actually had been in touch with Ron Mars at one point. And so after, um, after we had the arcs and everything of the book, I, um, I sent him as like a screenshot of, of the first, of the, t- of the dedication page to, to let him know that it was there. And I, and I wanted, and I got his address from him so I could send him a copy and everything. Um, but then I felt like a dumbass because he's like, Oh, you know, next time you do one of these, you should let me know. And I, I'd always, I always like to, you know, stretch my writing muscles and try, you know, a different <laughs> form, you know, I was oh. like, Oh God, I should have asked him to write a story. Why didn't <laughs> I do that? I, I, I mean, I, I did, ha- I did have previous contact with him, you know, so. I was like, oh man, I'm, I was just kicking myself after that. But, um, well, but yeah, I mean, well, you, you gotta just gotta do a follow up anthology, even more cosmic powers, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely would love to. I mean, it was so much fun putting this book together, and uh, I'm so happy with how it turned out, and and the publisher is really happy as well, and it seems like it's getting really good reviews so far. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I'm down for it. Yeah. Okay. Well. So. So. Becky. So. You said you. You get this. Um. This email from John or whatever, and you say, "Yeah, I can write a short story." And then you're not at all sure that you actually can. Right. Kind of <laughs> talk about what. What. What happened next there? Right. So. Um. I was also. I was on deadline for a close in common orbit when I got that email, and I. I sat there going, "Oh, I don't know. Like, I've got this book. I'm. I'm barreling through, and I don't know if I should do this at all." But. Um. Just the prompt was so delicious. I couldn't say no. I was like, I, that just sounds so fun, you know, and especially because, you know, the, the, the sort of that little nuance between science fiction and science fantasy, you know, like I, I write about far future and aliens and spaceships and all these things in, in my books, but science fantasy, I was like, oh man, I can just goof off. Like I can just get really ridiculous and it sounds so fun. Um, but I, I also being on deadline didn't have a world of time. And part of my problem with short stories is I, I really love lore. Like I, I, I really love, um, digging into world building and, and, and creating these places. And I knew, um, A, that I wouldn't be able to fit all of it into <laughs> to 10,000 words, which has always been my problem with short stories. Um, and also that I, I, I didn't have time because I had to get back to my book. So, um, I, I 
decided to play to my strengths and keep it um simple keep it personal um tell a story that that fit into um the broader theme but that um I don't want to say that I could get through quickly because that makes it sound like I was rushing it, which I, <laughs> which I wasn't. But, um, but just something that, that I, that I, I felt, um, that I could confidently do. So, so what I did is I, is I took, um, a story we've all seen 20,000 times about the, the, um, unwitting chosen one and, uh, you know, the, the, the misfit, the lowborn kid, um, who, nobody thinks much of, um, and who's destined to be a hero. And I said, okay, well, what if a, she's really terrible at this and she doesn't go through all the arcs of, you know, making friends and, and, you know, actually becoming the hero by the end. What if she's reluctant the entire way through? And two, what if she's really lonely? What if, you know, she, she doesn't get all the buddies that that kind of character usually gets along the way? What if, um, her story isn't, um, you know, it, it isn't the, the, the big heroic victory we expect it to be. And so I, and I, I kept all of the action off screen kind of and, and to just left it at her personal logs, her talking about this experience. Um, and that was, that was really fun because I could throw in all these details about all the crazy stuff going on in the galaxy. But at the end of the day, she just wants to come home and have a sandwich. So, um, <laughs> so that, that was, that was the, uh, the the direction I headed in with that. Well, so when you say the story was personal, do you just mean it's focused very specifically on this character or is it autobiographical or anything like that? Oh, well, I mean, I haven't killed any like giant interdimensional monsters. Okay, and that's lately, what I was curious so. about. So. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd love to say yes, but, <laughs> but I mean, there was a little bit of, um, I mean, I, I did mean it in more of the sense that it's a, you know, a, a very introspective story about her. But there, there was a little bit of um, drawing from myself a little, uh, just a smidge in um, something you guys are probably familiar with that that I've been encountering, you know, as as my writing, you know, it has gone out there. Um, the difference between people, how people see you, and and who you are at home, you know, the difference between Becky Chambers, who's the author, and Becky Chambers, who spends most of her time sitting in her backyard, you know, um, who you are sitting at the signing table versus who you are, um, you know, when you're in your pajamas and you should be doing something more important. Um, so I, I had been doing a lot of thinking along those lines as I headed into my second book. And I think I think some of that bled in there for sure. So how do you think people see you when you're out in public or in your author persona? Uh you know, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I don't know. I don't know how people see me, but I know I am mindful of how people see me. You know, I, when I go to conventions and whatnot, I think all of us do this. You know, you're very careful about, you know, what you say on panels, how, how you present yourself, what you're going to wear that day. Um, and all of it, you know, none of it is, is, um, dishonest, but at the same time, you are choosing which aspects of yourself to show to other people. You know, you're, it's not that you're, um, putting on a facade, but it is that you're, you're being selective about what parts of you they see. And, um, and I think that was a little bit, you know, I, that, that's the, that's the part I have in, in common with that character I wrote. Um, monsters, not so much, unfortunately, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, also talk about the monsters for people who haven't read the story. Just kind of what is it about? Sure. So, um, 
So the broader story at large is that you have these monsters called the crates, and they're these these giant serpent-like beings that have been going around devouring cities. Um, they're after our bioenergy, which is a nonsense thing I made up. Um, but <laughs> they, uh, so they chow down cities. Um, mostly they're after us and the, and the, uh, the buildings are just kind of, I don't know, croutons or something. And, um, and these have, these have happened before in the galaxy and uh, in, in, times of yore there was this this hero um who um was given this um we'll say magical i mean i know we're not supposed to say magic in 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 the (laughs) science fiction setting but that's that what that's what it is this sword that that channels her her super special energy um through it and becomes the super weapon that she uses to to kill the queen crate um, but they've come back and they have to, um, the, the powers that be are trying to find her descendant because she's the only one who can, who can wield the sword and, and stop the crates. And, uh, so it's, it's this, um, I don't know. In my mind, it was, it was very classic sort of, um, popcorn movie sort of, uh, you know, story about, oh, you, you know, you've got the big monsters and you've got the crazy sword and you've got the chosen one and, you know, all this stuff I, I just gobbled up as a kid. Well, you kind of, you have a lot of fun in the story with the idea of how much sense does it really make to have a sword that only the descendant of this person can wield? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I definitely wanted to call that out because um, I think if I were in that position, I would think it was a stupid thing to do um, <laughs> because you should like it's 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 wildly inefficient, right? Like if you have these things that are out to destroy the galaxy and you have this one weapon that only one person can wield. That's, that's really cool in a, in a hero's journey sort of way, but you're going to lose a lot of planets before you figure out who can pick that thing up. <laughs> um, and one, one detail I thought was really interesting is that you have this kind of, these kind of priest psychics or something, uh, prophets who gain their powers by staring at the sun until they go blind. Yeah, um, I have no idea where I came up with that, but I I thought it was a, I thought it was a neat idea. I I I somehow just felt like a natural choice to have there be a a religion built around this idea. I think that's kind of a staple of of science fantasy. I was thinking that I was as, as I was reading um, some of the other stories in the anthology that that religion, not not faith or spirituality, but like cult or um, you know, some sort of analog to the Catholic Church. This is something that comes up a lot in this kind of thing. And I think it's because you're dealing with, um, you know, floating godheads and, and all the rest of it. So it seemed like a, like a natural choice, um, to, to include a bit of that in there because plus then you get prophecies and whatnot. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I had this idea of, um, you know, you, you if you stare at the sun for long enough, you you can open your mind up to the the larger secrets of the universe, which is not true. Um, I don't <laughs> doing that. <laughs> um, don't test out that theory. Um, but yeah, I, I I liked the. I don't know. I like I like my uh, my made up religions to have a, a little bit of something kind of spooky. I was always really captivated as a kid by the idea that you could get superpowers by doing something that I could actually do, like staring at the sun until I went blind, you know, as opposed to being born on Krypton or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If I only I live next to a nuclear power plant. If only. <laughs> I mean, John, do you have anything you want to add about Becky's story? Or- no, no. I mean, I mean, I thought it was great, obviously, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I, if I recall correctly, it was basically ready to go when she turned it in, so I think she's uh, underestimating her abilities to write short stories. I, we, like, think her with a title, but that was about it. But I, I do that all the time. I, I retitle, like, half the stories that guy sent to me, so it's like, that's not unusual. But we didn't have to retitle mine. That's true. That's true. Yours was, yours was right on. So it was originally the twice-sung text, and you're like, let's fuck this up a little bit. I think we could go for thrice-sung. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what it was called uh, originally, but I, I remember that I, uh, I did I did fixate on the thrice-sung text when I came across it in the actual story. Um, and I was like, oh, it'd be really great to get this as part of the title. Um, and so I went with that. You know, I, I think I, I, I don't remember if I suggested this exactly, but I think I did suggest this sort of uh, triptych of, of phrases, you know. Yeah, it was this is that. Yeah, this the title is exactly what you suggested. Oh, OK. The, the original I've been actually struggling to remember the whole time because yours just stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the original was um, the private logs of Eris Redstone, um, which was the name of the character, which is not actually in the story at all. And you were like, well, you've got these other words in here that I like better. So let's, <laughs> let's use those. Um, but I actually did, um, this is a, the, an Easter egg for anybody who's read my second book. Um, there's a part in my second book where um, one of the main characters is going through action figures she has from her favorite um, Sims, like her favorite, uh, you know, future video games. And she mentions that one of them is Eris Redstone. So mm. I, so it's uh which nobody would get except me. <laughs> it's a title that that wasn't used for a character that wasn't named, but I still kept it. <laughs> no, but I, I thought it was a very confidently written story. I'm I'm surprised to hear that you were so uh, apprehensive about it. I think you sh- you shouldn't be because you can clearly write short stories quite well. Well, thank you. That's a uh, that's very gratifying to hear. <laughs> um. So, how about Toby? So you told us that you. Um, that you had the title, right? The Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance. And then how did Correct. you go about building a story around that title? Well, so that was the panicky part for me because as we came up close to the deadline and I kept having to ask John for an extension because mm-hmm. I was working on this other project. The, I was trying to finish up Halo Envoy, which which just came out last week. And that was turning into way more, way bigger of an edit and process. And it just kept eating more and more of my time. So by the time I actually sat down to write the story, I, I think like John had given me so many different extensions to try and get me in there that, that I was, you know, I had days on the clock. I think John, I had like a week or something before your absolute, you know, you need to go away sort of deadline. <laughs> yeah. That and, sounds uh, right. Yeah. And so when I finally got that week, what I really wanted to do was just sleep for a week. You know, when I was done with the halo envoy edit, I was exhausted and, and, but I, I just, I really wanted Zen and the Arship, sorry, Zen and the Art of Starship Maintenance to exist. So when I sat down and started working on it, I had to come up with a story worthy of the title, which is the reason I hadn't actually written it yet, mm-hmm. because I hadn't come up with a story worthy of the title at all. And all of the ideas I'd come up with were a bit trite, and I just kept rejecting. Because I really feel with a title like that, you kind of have to deliver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... So with seven days on the clock and being exhausted, I was, I was just not sure what to do. And I happened to be reading uh, a book about uh, Grenadian history. I'm, I was born in Grenada. I'm born in Grenada. I'm Grenadian. And there is a book called a uh, woman's history of Grenada up to the revolution. And it dealt with a lot of the sort of uh, dark history of slavery but also with labor relations uh, pre-revolution 
the Grenadian Revolution happened in 1979 when I was when I was born. And during that period, there was a lot of uh, poverty and struggle on the island, you know, post-slavery all the way up to the revolution where people were trying to get workers' rights, trying to get more money, trying to get infrastructure, and their communities developed and international conglomerates were, you know, uh, not giving them a lot. And all throughout the book, from the time of slavery all the way through to prior to the revolution, there was a really long history of labor rights actions that were taken by the disenfranchised. So you had people doing a lot of things that are common in other places when they uh, fight back for labor rights. For example, like work slowages, not stoppages, because when you're in a position of being enslaved, you know, a work stoppage is something that will get you, you know, enormous, enormous uh, lashback, literally, um, or uh, death. So in the case of many of these workers, they would do things like interpret orders literally to the letter and still manage to mess up the process to slow things down or just literally slow the work way down. And there were some later on uh, some walkouts and, and things of that nature. But it was an essential tool as I began to do some other scholarship in some of the other uh, Caribbean history books I was reading at the time for – trying to gain back uh, some measure of control during these dark periods. And I found that something that kind of sat in the back of my head. And I happened to be reading a piece of scholarship about how Asimov came up with the three laws of robotics and how Campbell suggested them to him, Joseph Campbell, and Joseph Campbell being sort of a noted sort of just general racist. <laughs> no, John back- W. Campbell. John W. Campbell. Thank you. Joseph 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 uh, Joseph Campbell's the mythology the, guy. The mythology guy. Sorry. The, I just <laughs> uh yeah, there there's my verbal dyslexia for you. Thank you for the correction. Um Campbell, uh the the editor of Analog back in the day, uh, was really uh, noted for, you know, making arguments for pro-slavery and 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 things of that nature, you know, as friends of his time supposedly said he just likes to like, you know, play the devil's advocate, but I find it kind of intellectually odious. And Thinking of the fact that he was the one that came up with the three laws of robotics and I was reading about slavery and workers' rights, I just kind of immediately kind of clicked those two things together to come up with the story, which was to come up with a, a, you know, someone who had been a person who's now a robot and who as a robot is sort of uh, having to use some of the same tools as people who were once enslaved had to use in order to sort of navigate their situations. And that was just kind of the the sort of uh, basic seed that the, the story came from, which was trying to imagine what a robotic personality would do. Because, uh, you know, I love Star Wars. I love that epic space opera thing. But one of the things that I find really interesting and that we don't, don't really acknowledge a lot is that as much as we laugh at C-3PO and R2-D2, they're essentially slaves. You know, in the very first movie, we get that moment where they're like, you know, we don't we don't allow any of their kind into the bar. And there's this sort of like secondary class status that the robots have just because they're robots. But ostensibly, they're thinking and judging by C-3PO's uh, drama feeling creatures, right? Even if they are made out of metal. And yet they are used for free labor and uh, sold around. And Luke Skywalker is the hero of the rebellion, but he's essentially a slave owner. And so looking at that from that perspective, I just kind of wanted to take that big space opera kind of assumption about 
you know, metal beings and kind of pack them into this story and, and give the point of view to the robot. Right. So in this world that you've created, there's sort of this conflict between the robots and what you call the preservationists, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the formists, they're interested in, in the original human form and uh, being, you know, more, more pure. Right. And so, so we actually have a formist right here in, on our panel. Because I know that uh, John Joseph Adams does not believe that if he transfers his mind into a robot body, <laughs> that will really be him. Well, that's true. I mean, it's not because I believe that the human body is is inherently superior or anything. I just don't believe that we would survive that transfer as the the same consciousness. Right. Oh, and see, I'm I'm the opposite because I would upload <laughs> myself to a computer in a hot second. Oh, I would love it. No, no, don't get me wrong. <laughs> if it if it worked, I would love it. I just I don't believe I don't believe that it would be possible. Uh like if 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 you made that if you tried to make that attempt, I feel like that would be creating a copy of your consciousness and it would think it's you and you know, for all intents and purposes, everyone else would think it's you, but the real you would die at some point, and then just this copy of you would live on, and that's not the same thing. <laughs> because sure. there really is a, a split second where you simultaneously exist, and you're thus different beings uh, that are existing in the same space-time continuum or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, that's 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 my uh, that's my. Uh, well, this is this great dilemma, obstacle. right? Because yeah. the person, the person in this story is someone who's been copied off of a human mind. So whether or not he's that original human or in this story, he says there are many copies of himself because he's a competent worker right. and navigator. Um, that means that the people who hire and, and basically buy his quote unquote contract don't view him basically as human. And, you know, one of the things I found is that, you know, I can, uh, I can science fictionalize and talk about race and society in, in many different ways. But sometimes when you talk about actual race, you know, people come to it with so much baggage. So one of the things I was trying to do was try to look at what would be a futuristic, but realistic, um, philosophical profound split among what we would view as human in the future. For example, you know, the robot himself definitely views himself as cognitive, but he has a lot of different as a as a thinking being but he has lots of different viewpoints about what a human being can then be because he doesn't have a human form he he looks more kind of like a spider he's adapted to working on the outside of the hull he doesn't view the idea of having a name as important he just has like basically an ip address <laughs> which is all he cares about you know hey yeah and so he looks very alien and very robotic and, and very not us. And the enemy of this piece is someone who's a formist, someone who has retained his original form. Um, and while he uses implants and things like that to keep himself alive for a long, believes that, you know, you should be flesh and blood. Basically, you should look like a human. You should have a name. And, you know, there have been wars and memes and fights and philosophical differences about this all throughout the galaxy in the place where the story takes place. And even though the uh, formist has lost the battle, uh, he still has a lot of, he still has a lot of trouble to cause. The, the, the third thing that came into writing this story is this is my fourth attempt to do a rewrite or to grab the idea of, um, uh, a story by uh, Joseph Conrad called The Secret Share and science fictionalize it. Um, for 
those of you who haven't read it, it is a story by Joseph Conrad. It's about a uh, captain who's on a ship. He's just been made a captain. He's a very young captain, inexperienced. You know, think Kirk in the movies. And he's uh, at anchor somewhere in the uh, South Pacific when someone swims onto his boat, a stowaway, and crawls aboard. And he's escaped from another ship. He's a fellow captain. Everyone has mutinied. And he needs to get away. And so the captain of this new ship keeps him on board the ship, takes care of him. And then as he sails by land, secretly basically goes really close to the reef so that the guy can jump off the ship and swim to shore. And it's this really sort of coming of age story, learning how to be a leader story, because all of the people are like, hey, you're going too close to the reef. You'll crash us. And so forth and so on. Now, of course, Joseph Conrad is a really problematic author for us in the modern ages due to his uh, viewpoints on Africa and uh, race and all this other stuff. And there's a lot of debate in scholarship circles. And I know a lot of my uh, friends of color uh, really resent having to be forced to read him when you're in an English program. And all of that is totally true. And and one of the interesting things when I was reading about this story is that I chose it to do a senior thesis paper on. And one of the pieces of of further kind of complicating it was that he based that short story, which is famous and, 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 you know, read by a lot of people on an incident that actually happened in real life. He was the captain of a ship, a real life ship, a T clipper, I think, who basically uh, back then uh, ships crews used to be far more integrated in real life. Uh, if you were a person of color, a person from a, a non-white country, one way you could kind of uh, see the world and be in a more democratic area is to be on a crew because it's just this little microcosm and people learn to trust each other based on competency. And so a lot of, even, even while on the mainland, there were uh, tremendous amounts of racism and restriction of rights to people of color. When you were uh, on a ship um, in a lot of ships, it was a lot more meritocratous, meritocratous, meritocratous. It was much more of a meritocracy. And on this ship, this captain had been a complete racist and and had killed with what the crew thought was no sort of reason a uh, black crew member. And they mutinied. Uh, they basically tried to kill the captain. He locked himself into his room and he was in this uh, bay where it was like a complete like shark alley. And he jumped out of the back of his uh captain's cabin when they came to anchor because they were going to drag him into court to try and get him to pay for his crime. And he jumped out and he swam to a neighboring ship and then got to land and no one ever prosecuted him and he, he got away with murder. And I was so outraged when I read what the real historical seed for the secret share was because the secret share portrays both the stowaway and the captain who basically aids and abets him so sympathetically that I was always really furious. And so I wanted to flip that on its head. And so Zen and the Otter Starship Maintenance is a direct sort of, uh, sort of uh, call and response to the secret share where I kind of make the stowaway the, the enemy that he should be. And I don't, I don't want to give away the ending, Toby, but it's got a really, <laughs> really clever classic science fiction ending uh, thank you do you could i don't know, can you say sort of how you came up with it without giving it away or is there anything you can say oh about man that's really tough <laughs> you know it's this is the sort of ending that i've always wanted to to have in a story like you said it's that classic sort of ending it's a very uh you know it's it's kind of let's just say it's kind of like a reverse cold equations ending it's the same sort of logic. It's the same sort of science thought all the way throughout to its inevitable conclusion. But it's also, you know, some a whole lot of cleverness on the part of the protagonist 
who is um, going back and using some, he's using a tactic that has been used going all the way back to, you know, the original days of, of people being enslaved and having to fight back with the tools that they have to get what justice they can through whatever methods they have. And that's definitely what this, this character is, is then forced to, to fall back on. And so I was, I was really excited in this story. Um, and I, I hate it. It's, or not, I shouldn't say I hate it, but it feels awkward to toot your own horn, but I'm just really proud of the story because it's a story where I was able to get that response to the secret sharer pulled in and riff off of that and riff off of this history. I was reading about the Caribbean and some of the darker pieces of it, and also kind of have this dialogue with the, you know, the three laws of robotics and, and bring all those things together to make that ending, bring all three of those threads together. Endings can be some of the toughest things to learn as a writer and to master. So whenever you can kind of nail it like that, it feels really, really, really satisfying. I'm sort of struck, Toby, that you said you you had just finished this big book and now you you have a seven days to write this short story. You're on this super tight deadline. And you're like, and so then I was reading A History of Grenada. <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that your – is that your you, – you just – you're always reading stuff like that no matter how tight of a deadline you're on or you, – You have to be reading. I mean if – no matter how tight the deadline is, if you're not reading – you're you're killing yourself and so that's where the raw ideas and that's where the raw stuff in the background comes from and you never know what you're going to read that's going to spark what idea so as i was coming up to the end of having finished this this really intense deadline you know the very first thing i did the day after the deadline was pick up a book i had had on my to read shelf for a long time and my reading suffered over the last 2 years prior to the, to the deadline as the, the, you know, my reading in 2016 and 2015 was a fraction of what it has been every year since or every year before that. And so the moment I was done with that deadline, you know, as I'm trying to come up with a story idea, I'm immediately picking this book off the shelf that I'd read like a small chunk of and purchased when I had been down at a literary conference down in the islands and brought back with me a, y- a year before I wrote the story. So, you know, I finally, a year after buying the darn book, I open it up and I'm reading it as I'm trying to come up with some idea, you know, and writing down stuff on pieces of paper for this anthology. And it was, it was this sort of like memory of the secret sharer and, you know, this chance article I'd read about the three laws of robotics. And then I'm also reading this book and thinking, Oh my gosh, like I didn't plan this, but this book has 100% pertinence, you know, and I read it in an evening, you know, uh, had it in my, by my bedstand and was just reading it before I fell asleep. And that was kind of like, you know, the next day I woke up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I can tie all these three things together in a really kind of engaging way. Yeah. I mean, John and Becky, I know you both read Toby's story. Does anyone have anything, anything else they want to ask about it or observations or anything? Well, I just wanted to comment first that I I loved it. I thought it was brilliant, and I thought the oh, thank you so much. The I well, the the idea of you know, as someone who is who would love to upload herself into a computer, the idea of the trade off <laughs> would be free will was mm-hmm. I it was just a, a take on it I hadn't encountered before, and it really made me think. It made it really made me sit and chew on. Well, would I? I hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. but the the thing in listening to you talk about um your inspiration for the story, um, that really makes me love what you did with the formist, because the formist idea of what it means to be human is not what 
I think most of us here in the real world would consider this is what it means to be human. You know, the, the way the formist is described is, you know, having all of these, uh, mechanical or, or constructed parts. And yet this is the form he, he believes is, is pure and superior. And I think that's, um, I think that's just so spot on because if you're talking about, um, if you're talking about bigotry or you're talking about fundamentalism, all these ideas that this is the way it's always been and this is how it's, you know, this is, this is what is superior. Those ideas change, you know, I mean, not, not even just by the century, but by the decade, you know, we, we, these things that people cling to as being, um, you know, the best or, 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 um, you know, this is how it's always been are not true. You know, we, we, we migrate and we mingle and we change ideas about how, um, our, our families and society and all of it are constructed. And yet in every iteration, you have someone who, who looks at this thing and say, well, this is the best and this is how it's always been. Um, and I think, I don't know. I just think that, 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 mer- that, that idea marries so well with what you did of this, this person who to me is, is inhuman, is very not human. And, um, I don't know. I just, I, I think, uh, I think that's really clever. Wow. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, John, what, did you have something you were going to say? I, I was just going to say that, uh, that I'm just, I'm really glad that I persevered and, uh, and, and continued, uh, giving Toby extensions <laughs> so that he had, had time to write the story. Cause I mean, it turned out so great, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, there's nothing in the book like this story, you know, I mean, some of the, some of the other stories are like, okay, well, this one's kind of similar to this other one or whatever like that. Um, but this story really stands apart. So, um, I'm, I'm really glad to have included it. And, uh, you know, props to John because he really worked hard editorially because as I said, we only had the, the seven days and I was burnt out. So even though I kind of had this, this idea, the seed that I'm very proud that I, I managed to pull together and, and I'm very appreciative and, and quite honored that John, you know, stuck with me for so long, but he really went above and beyond, not just in giving me the deadlines, but worked, we worked really hard on the first few pages because I was completely shot by the time I wrote the first draft. And so I got him a first draft that, that was very rough and we had to keep going over it and, and working on it to, to bring it up to the, to, to the place he needed. Uh, and, and for that, I'm, I'm extremely grateful because I was in a place where I, I didn't have that in me at all to, to stick with the story that hard. So he really believed in it enough to kind of give me a lot of notes and work on, work on the, the small stuff on it to get it to where it needed to be because it was just sort of a hail Mary pass and then collapse type thing. When I got him the story, it was just a sort of, I will give him something that has these ideas within it, you know? And if he, if he turns it down, which I was like, I think this may be the first time he kind of throws up his hands and walks away. Um, then I will then spend like, you know, a month like sleeping after this huge deadline and then I'll come back to it and I'll just tinker it up. And, and I know I can sell it. I just, I don't think it's quite ready. And he just kept with me for, uh, the rest of the week, just kind of sending, sending edits back and kind of just keeping on me until, until he got me where I needed to be. And so that was, that was above and beyond and he didn't have to do that. And that was, that was quite, that was quite a, a team effort there. Hmm. I really like what Becky said too about the, that this, this formist character thinks of himself as the pure human, even though he's like super technologically advanced by our standards. And just this idea that, 
this is how the world changes over the centuries is that you can be the most hyper cyber enhanced dude in the world who can survive in, in a vacuum and all this stuff. And you're the, like the Amish in your society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely that, that, you know, that moment where you think like this guy is, is as much a robot as the robot, as far as I can tell. I also really want to ask you, Toby, I thought the, the Holy of Holies scene was, was really, really cool. Could you talk about that? Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, that's, that was just, uh, I'm not sure where I got that from. I was definitely thinking about, again, cosmic powers, uh, sense of wonder, uh, just things that, that are semi mystical, which is something I often don't do a lot of being more sort of hard SF or near future techno thriller. And so I definitely wanted to, you know, one of the things John said was, you know, sense of wonder, sense of wonder. And I, I thought, man, I really need to, to tap into that as much as I can. So the Holy of Holies is sort of like the idea of just the singularity of consciousness that is created as a priest, basically a confessor, something that you can go and talk to and that'll solve all your problems. It is sort of like their future religion and it's super technological. And yet there's something so mystical about it that it kind of combines both those things. And so that's what I set out to write. It's this singularity that creates itself around you when you go into the temple that is an immense, intelligent consciousness. That sole purpose is to listen to what your problems are and try to help you with them and come up with some solutions and let you unburden yourself and is sort of like this like highly encrypted device that destroys itself the moment you're done conversing with it and is extremely moral. And what the robot does when it goes to seek counsel is give it some options on what it can do and nudge it in the right direction. And it's this sort of like, you know, bizarre robot form goes into the confession booth, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of years in the future, what does that look like? And it's way more transcendental and, and has that sense of wonder and, and leaves you with this moment of kind of like, you know, touching the divine, uh, as a result of having this discussion and then you leave. And I just, that's, those were all the emotions I was trying to evoke with it. Yeah, I think that's just so cool that, you know, you, you can confess your secrets to this thing and you know that it's not going to tell anyone because it's going to cease to exist at the end of this session, basically. <laughs> well, and because also- that's what I would want out of a confession <laughs> booth. I don't want a human being who's going to, like, turn around and be like, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but that also ties in with what Becky was saying earlier about uh, how frequently c- Catholic um, imagery shows up in this kind of far future um, science fiction. Yeah, and I was, I was thinking of it as Toby was speaking just now, and I, I think he hit the nail right on the head, it's touching the divine, right? It's it's that sense of wonder we get when we when we look out there, when we imagine, you know, what life in space could be like. I think um I, I think that actually really clarified what the appeal is is for me, or or at least why I included a little, you know, a bit of that in in my story as well. When you're talking about science fiction, you know, even if you're writing about um, aliens and spaceships and stuff like, that, in my work at least, I try to I try to keep it grounded. You know, yeah, we're going to have all this fantastic technology and stuff, but I want it to feel plausible. But if you get into the realm of fantasy, and that's not to say that that um, 
I don't, I don't want to insult anyone here by, by saying religion <laughs> and fantasy belong in the same category, but I think it's that it's that. I don't think you're going to insult anyone here by saying that. Okay, well, I'm just trying not to dig a trench here. Um, so, um, but what it is is, I think it's that that inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Right. It, that it's, it's that mystery. And that's something where, you know, that's the opposite of science, right? Science is there to uncover the mystery, where if it's just pure mystery and awe, that's the realm of religion. And I think that's, um, I think that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> making this up as I go, but I would guess that that's why we see, we see so much of that stuff in this type of science fiction where we're going beyond what we can understand. We're going beyond, um, what we can, what we can puzzle out and what we can rationalize. And we're instead going into something that is, um, awesome in the, in the original meaning of the word. I mean, John, do you want to talk a little bit about this idea of gods and, um, sort of, uh, putative gods, you know, fake gods in, um, in this kind of galactic science fiction that we see in this book? Because that shows up a bunch of times in, in these different stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, and, and I'm, I'm kind of glad that that kind of thing did show up because, I mean, that that seems like it's really part and parcel of this whole uh, kind of uh, story that I was looking for. Like, I mean, you know, if I imagine, like, Silver Surfer, like, half the time Silver Surfer's hanging out in the cosmos in between planets, like, talking to some kind of god thing. You know, it's like the Living Tribunal or, like, the manifestations of order or chaos or whatever. Like, you know, these... it's like, so, so I love the idea that, um, you know, like some of the stories is like, oh, well, we're walking around on the head of a dead god or, um, or, you know, like you say, you know, there's these punitive gods and, and such in there. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, when, when you guys were bringing up the idea that there's these corollaries to like Catholicism and such, um, that hadn't actually occurred to me, but it makes so much sense now that you say it. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think, um, the whole sort of, uh, the whole notion of sort of gods as these sort of extra dimensional or, uh, you know, extra dimensional beings of some sort that sort of exist outside of like the known, you know, laws of physics as we know them. Um, I think that's like a cool way of like incorporating those sorts of, um, ideas, but in a science fictional, uh, framework that, that, you know, you can't really, you can't really do otherwise, like, unless you, unless you just, you know, throw, you know, throw the rules down and be like, ah, let's, let's just step over this one and this one and this one and, and not worry about it too much. Um, so. Well, well, I love John in the Adam Troy Castro, um, mm-hmm. story that they have the Yahweh scale that they use to measure <laughs> these, uh, right. these space gods. Yeah, that was cool. So, so basically, uh, you know, uh, Yahweh would be a hundred on the Yahweh scale and a human being would be a point one. And then, you know, the different, everything they encounter, you know, in the, in this story, they run into a 23.6, which is just like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh no. Sorry. No, they run into a 31.9, which okay. is, and it's a, it's an exponential scale too. So, uh, you know, a 31.9 is a really, really powerful space God. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I had to put uh, five years of Anglican school to uh, good use. <laughs> yeah, as as uh, as I was saying, I didn't notice the the, the Catholic, uh, you know, sort of co- uh, corollaries that you guys are talking about. It's like uh, my uh, I actually did go to Catholic school when I was a kid, and and uh, Christy often mentions how I'm like the worst Catholic ever. I mean, I'm an atheist now, but um, but I mean, it's like it's like you went to Catholic school, and and, and you like you don't know any of this stuff. It's like she'll she'll mention some reference to the Bible, and I just stare at her blankly, and it's just like the 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 depth of my um, ignorance about the biblical things is uh, pretty profound. 
and I'm happy to keep it that way. But but I mean, the this idea of spaceships running into gods in space, mm-hmm. I feel is not super explored in science fiction. I mean, it makes me think of right. um, Star Trek V, or mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there's this book by John Scalzi called The God Engines, which I haven't read. I was but, just going to mention that, yes. I mean, could, I haven't read it, Toby. Could you talk about what... Does that sound? Uh, that's, that's pretty much what we're talking about, or in the God Engines. Well, what they do in the God Engines is they harness gods to make faster than light travel. So you kind of capture a god and put it in manacles in the middle of a starship, and you can head out and explore the galaxy. And uh, basically, the the novella, the God Engines, basically runs with that. And it's a very very dark, uh, very cosmic powers ish sort of. Uh, novelette novella novella that uh, John wrote that's really uh, not in what people expect as his usual style mm-hmm. but a good read absolutely it, it's more it's more what more sort of um, dense prose or something or uh, he's usually uh, mostly dialogue and a lot of funny uh, he's funny light fast and this is really sort of deeply uh, dark it's a, it's a dark it's a dark piece huh. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the idea of like chaining gods into the center of your ship and like, you know, <laughs> torturing them to uh, create faster than light travel is not a happy dialogue heavy uh, romp through the galaxy. <laughs> but that would be an interesting challenge to write that as a comedy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, John would probably be up for the task. He's the <laughs> one of the masters of of that kind of that kind of fun, fun experience in, in our genre. But no, this is this was I it was like I would call it like dark fantasy science fiction. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, so some of the some of the um, things we were just talking about uh, reminded me. So, uh, uh, you know, when I was describing the book, uh, I thought it might actually be interesting to hear like the actual uh, like description that I gave the authors, to, and, and then to see what stories they came up with. But uh-huh. uh, you know, Toby Toby mentioned how I, I you know I kept pushing sense of wonder and stuff, and so so basically I described it uh, in a one line summary as just like an anthology of cosmic space opera esque science fantasy. But then I drilled down a little bit and said the I describe the story parameters as uh, stories should take place out in the cosmos on spaceships and or in space with heroes battling larger than life forces with the fate of planets, galaxies, or even the universe itself at stake. Uh, stories that feel like science fiction, but push everything past the limits of believability. And additionally, I wanted the guiding principles of the anthology to be fun and sense of wonder. And I put fun and sense of wonder in all caps. Um, <laughs> and, and then I said that uh, all of the stories should be full of those two things. And so, uh, so that was like what I was really wanting people to go for. And I think they did really well um i also then dropped in some pop culture reference points it's just sort of like you know well kind of like gardens of the galaxy silver surfer infinity gauntlet uh green lantern and to a lesser extent star wars and and so basically you know throw that all into a writer blender and uh you know this anthology is what got turned out i mean you were telling me john there's this story by joseph allen hill that you were saying really fit that description of what you sent out yeah yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I love that story so much. Like, and I'm really excited about him as a writer. Like, uh, he, he also wrote this great story called The Venus Effect that I published last year. That's one of my favorites from, um, you know, all year. Uh, but yeah, Infinite Love Engine, man. Like, I, uh, it, it was just like, it just like hit like exactly like what I was imagining this anthology would be. Like, I mean, like some of the stories, like, I love them just as much. But they didn't quite, it's not quite I, what I initially pictured, but I, but that's part of the reason why I love them. You know, it's like, oh, that's not what I was expecting, but this is fantastic. But then his story is like, oh, no, this is exactly, this is like torn <laughs> out of my brain and just like put on the page. It's like, 
so it's it's so great when you see something like that. And like um the Dan Abnett story is the other one like that, that I thought was like that. Um and the stories are actually kind of very similar. Um probably mostly because they're almost they're very similar to Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh but um uh, which is not surprising on Dan Abnett's part because he actually wrote Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, the the main comic uh, series that the that the movie was based on is it was from his run. Um, but uh, yeah, the Joseph Allen Hill story. It's like uh, uh, you know this. There's this like telepathic space monster who uh, is like compelling love from everyone in the universe, and uh, there's this uh, sort of apathetic uh, space warrior woman who has to try to stop it. And um, it's just like it's just written in this wonderful um, like. It's just like just the voice is so great. It's just like I I I uh, actually uh, I you know we uh, you know one of the things I've been trying to do when I publish anthologies recently is like I'll I'll try to publish uh, a few of the stories or make sure that a few of the stories are available online in order to try to help uh, people find the books and everything. And so um, so for for Infinite Love Engine, I actually took that one and I published it in Lightspeed like in April. So sort of almost simultaneously with the anthology, and then in 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 the anthology technically it's the reprint there because. Uh, uh, just because of the timing. Um, but, uh, so because of that, um, you know, um, it appears in Lightspeed and it also appeared on our podcast. And so I, I you know, I actually went and listened to the podcast version afterward. And so, uh, it was really great. It was, it, it was just really fun, like, you know, reliving it and everything. And it's like, um, I, I honestly, I feel like I could just listen to it a couple more times too. So, <laughs> well, that story is really interesting because the main character speaks in this very sort of streetwise yeah. vernacular um contemporary you know way of speaking and then that's juxtaposed with the like crazy robots mm-hmm. and gods and things in a way that's just really interesting yeah 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 I, lo- I love like the way she talks with uh with the space or the brain cube thing and it's just it's just like uh and oh yeah well and the and um the initial uh she's like in this like blobby space creature thing that she's traveling through space in, like instead of in a spaceship and in like her conversations with that thing at the right at the start of the story. It's uh it's quite a trip. Yeah. And then she has the philosophical argument with the robot. It's just, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff. Oh yeah. Story. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. And then you mentioned the Dan Abnett thing too. That has some of the best written action I've ever seen in a story. Right. Yeah, no, so it's funny. Um, one of, so the reviews, like I mentioned, have been largely very good. And, uh, and this one review was actually very positive. They really liked the anthology, but they didn't like that story very much. And I was, and, and, and the complaint was that it, um, it was like too hard to suspend disbelief. And I'm like, dude, like you got all the way through this book and then you got to that story and then you're like, oh, I just can't believe this. This is, this is too weird. It's like, come on. That's, like, that's the whole book. It's like the whole book is like that. And <laughs> so like, I, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to react to that kind of uh, reaction to it. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's so great. Yeah. It's like the wait, action. Wait, so is, they, they made it past the Charlie Jane Andrews story without any like possible <laughs> I know, right? issues, but. Right, right. I know it's, it's kind of, kind of bizarre, but, um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, that story is so great. I was like, I, uh, that and a couple of the other stories in the book, when I read them, I just, I wanted to swear in the acceptance letter because it was like so fucking good. It's like, it, it's a little unprofessional to say that like in an email when you're accepting a story. So I restrained myself. But like after the fact, I can say, oh, a story was so fucking good, you know? So. Man, I would love to hear some swearing in an acceptance letter sometime. <laughs> I. I had an acceptance letter once that was all caps and swearing, and it's the best <laughs> acceptance letter I've ever oh, received. Okay, yeah, I don't well, think you got to hold back, John. <laughs> yeah, well, see, the thing is, it's, you, you kind of got to know your audience, though. So it's like, okay, I've talked to you guys. I realize that you guys are cool with it now. And it's like, if I uh, if I knew Dan Abnett a little bit better, maybe I would have sworn at him when I when I emailed <laughs> him. I mean, he probably would have been fine, but um, but you know, I don't really know him that well, so uh, I don't want to push my luck. 
I mean, you mentioned, John, that he wrote the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book sequence that kind of inspired the movie. Do you know, any, is yeah. that all you know about that? Or do you know any more details about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know much. I don't, yeah, I don't know much beyond that. Um, yeah, but I mean, he like uh, his run was basically the inspiration. It's like his iteration of those characters is what the movie was basically uh, based on. So, yeah, that's about all I know, though. Huh. I also wanted to mention the Carl Schrader story, which is set in the same universe as his novel Lockstep which I thought was just fantastic. I interviewed him about it. I interviewed him about that book a, a year or two ago. Um, and Toby, I know you, you, you're buds with Carl, right? You guys collaborated on, on some stuff together? Yeah, I love Carl. He's awesome. Have you uh, have you been in touch with him lately? Uh, briefly, briefly. Do you, has he, did he, I don't know if he said anything to, anything to you about Lockstep or the story or anything. He didn't, uh, he didn't tell me anything about the story, and I haven't read it yet. Uh, Lockstep... I remember when he was first coming up with the idea for the lockstep universe and I friggin love it. He was telling me the, uh, the whole idea of, you know, people ta- uh, sleeping in cycles so that they're all, uh, together uh, across the interstellar differences, no faster than light. In fact, um, he told me that there's a character named Toby in lockstep. That's, <laughs> that's kind of a pat on the back towards me. And I used the lockstep idea because he told me it's great and he's trying to get people to use it. Uh, I loved it so much that Karen Lord and I used it. And a story called um, The Mighty Slinger, which is in uh, Bridging Infinity by uh, Jonathan Strahan. Sorry, John, your competition. Um, <laughs> but it's about a group of uh, Calypso singers who are basically using lockstep in order to stay in sync um, in their working parties. They kind of work on asteroids all over the solar system. And they use, you know, basically you go to sleep, you, you know, a la, you know, aliens or whatever, you kind of go into your suspended animation, but you all do it together so that you're all kind of in the same cohort. And so the lockstep universe is, is really fascinating to me in terms of a way of solving the large distance problems with, with, uh, you know, the really long travel distances and really slow economies. Yeah, that's the exact, whenever somebody asks me, have I come across any cool new science fiction ideas recently? <laughs> that's definitely one that I'll mention, the lockstep idea. I, I just think it's so brilliant. And it's it's just, brilliant. It's one of those things like it has to be in science fiction, you know, how, how mm-hmm. it never get. Carl is one of the most, is one of the, the more original science fiction thinkers mm-hmm. we have out there in terms of those hardcore concepts. I mean, the, the lockstep concept, um, his concept of thalliance, um, and a few other things that he's, he's posted in, in his books. Like, I, I joke with people that I've kind of made a career out of grabbing some of his ideas <laughs> and just running with them because I can take stuff that he spins out and, and write a whole book about it and kind of go like, woohoo, you know, um, the, uh, the idea for my novel Arctic Rising came out of the uh, conversation that he had when we co-wrote a short story together uh, called Mitigation, which was about what happens when the Arctic North becomes an actual ocean and it no longer has any freeze. And he tossed out a bunch of ideas when we were working on that story. And I, when I came up with the idea to write Arctic Rising, I kind of circled back to him and I said, hey, do you mind if I use some of these ideas that you know, you came up with and I helped, but I kind of felt like I was a bystander for <laughs> quite a bit of mitigation. And he was like, no, someone should write a novel about this. These are ideas I'm, I'm just trying to get out there. So, you know, much respect to him. I, I, I'm, I, whenever I get together with him, I always go home with just, just tons and tons of notes and new books to read because he's just a smart cookie. Hmm. Well, well, right. I mean, because, you know, like in your story, Toby, you mentioned there's the formist versus the non-formist. There's a really interesting philosophical debate like that in this story. Where okay. it's between the maxim, they're called the maximizers and the non-maximizers or whatever, where basically there's been this discovery that the universe is infinite, 
in, you know, in, in time is infinite and stretches mm-hmm. infinitely into the past and the future. And so one implication of that is that nothing that you do um, matters in any kind of moral sense because everything that you do that's good will be canceled out by something that you have done and will do infinitely in the future and past that's bad. And so people having come to this realization are uh, – there's a certain faction called the maximizers who they think, well, if nothing that I do matters – I might as well just do whatever feels good right now. Right. Um, and so they've, 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 so they've become this sort of, you know, like hedonist, selfish hedonists kind of faction. Um, and I don't know. I thought I, I had kind of like, I was kind of talking about that same sort of idea with time travel with James Glick when I interviewed him a couple months ago. But uh, I thought it was interesting that of course, Carl got there before me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, I, I was going to say when Toby was describing Carl as, as one of the most original thinkers and SF, I was kind of, I was thinking the same thing. Like, you know, like, you know, he's, he's like this great science fictional thinker. Like he, his, his, his stories and novels and such are always full of so many great ideas. It's like, it's, it's hard to keep up with them all. So it's hard to keep up with them all. And it's always criminal to me that he is not more widely read. Yeah. 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 I mean, John, are there any other stories in this book you kind of want to mention to just uh, bring people's attention to give them an idea of what other kind of things are in this book? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, you know, uh, we mentioned how, uh, Becky's, uh, novels are up for, uh, some of the major awards this year. Uh, Yoon Ha Lee is also up for the, uh, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Clark Award, uh, all for, uh, his first novel, Nine Fox Gambit. Yeah, and uh, and this story takes place in the same universe as that. So if you're familiar with that novel, then you know this the story, of the Chameleon's Gloves, uh, that takes place in the same universe. Um, but actually, let me, uh, let me just mention, John. There's yeah. a really interesting idea in this story. From speaking of the title, where the, the title is the Chameleon's Gloves, and so one of the ideas in this story is that there's these characters called haptic chameleons, where they're basically so good at imitating people's body language, like their way of walking and things, that they can fool. Um, you know, machines that recognize people by their gates and they can kind of fool people if you're not paying attention where you just think it's the, it's, you think it's somebody else because they're walking and moving their body just like that person does. Hmm. And one thing I think is really cool, like in these kind of cosmic powers kind of stories is that you want the societies to not just be exactly like our society, but to have <clears throat> other weird quirks and things. And one thing in this story I thought was really cool is that the the characters from this particular civilization um, they sort of, I guess they sort of view their hands the way that we view our genitals, where they, they keep them covered all the time and they sort of feel weird about them. And so there's this part where one of the characters intentionally takes off their gloves and is kind of rubbing their hands in, in order to make the person from this civilization uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was just, I thought, it was, I thought that was a cool detail. Nine Fox Gambit was a really standout novel of last year. It's not surprising to me that it's being nominated for all those awards. I really enjoyed it. And to this day, I get to the end of every email and want to write yours in calendrical heresy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, otherwise I, I was going to say, uh, you know, we mentioned it earlier, but Charlie Jane Anders story, it's the first story in the book. So, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that anthologists do, we put the, uh, we put uh, two of the stories we think are strongest at the beginning and end of, of an anthology. And so like, you know, her story uh, starts the book and Dan Abnett's ends the book. Uh, but so, you know, obviously I thought hers was very, uh, very good, very good example of what the book is uh, <laughs> trying to do. Um, yeah. It's really zany. It's like the, it's like the zaniest like thing that I, I can remember reading in recent memory um uh you know it uh the it, it has a spaceship in it called the spicy meatball so i mean that <laughs> kind of tells you almost everything you need to know about what kind of story you're in for and it's called a, a temporary embarrassment in space time which i love i love that that's such uh, a great title phrase. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was another one that I, I thought was really uh, a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's hard to pick any favorites, you know, any, anytime you do an anthology that you're really happy with, it's, it's like, there's so many great stories in there. It's hard to pick and choose and you don't want to leave anybody out. You don't want to leave anybody out, but, um, you know, so I, I leave it to, I leave it to people like you, Dave, to, to say, you know, which ones that you did you think was best because you don't have the personal <laughs> connection. To it. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I told you, I think that the Dan Abnett one, and Toby's one, I think, were my top two. And then I had um, Becky's story, like, right up there, number four or something. So, I mean, you've got some excellent writers here on this uh, panel. <laughs> um, I mean, Be Becky, is there anything you want to add um, about anything we've been saying? Anything you want to throw in? Um, Nothing in particular, except that uh, I, too, loved Charlie Janander's story. I was grinning all the way through it. It was just so off the wall and so much fun. And um and even though I'm I'm obviously in this anthology, um, you know, picking it up and reading that it just made me excited to to keep reading. It was I, I haven't um I haven't read any stories like this in such a long time. You know, it did feel like something from my childhood or or something from, I don't know, the good old days. Um so it was I don't know. I think, um, biased as I am, I think it's, I think this is a real treat. I think it's, it's so much fun and it's something I'm, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to taking some time to just, you know, cozy up and, and go explore. Isn't it fantastic when you can read something as a, an adult who's read a ton of, of work that sort of you enjoy and brings back a sense of wonder? That's like a real treat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, it was, I, I obviously read all the time, but it was the most fun I've had reading in a while. It was just like, oh, like it made me feel like I was, you know, a kid in the library again. <laughs> just, just, just excited, you know. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well done, John. Well done indeed. <laughs> I guess I'm just a little curious, Becky. I mean, you're, you know, you've just started publishing novels and I guess you're, you're probably starting to go to conventions and meet people and stuff. Have, have you met? Uh, any or many of the authors in this book? Not many. Um, actually, I'm not sure I've met any at all. Uh, that's not true. I met um, Sean and McGuire at the LA Times Festival of Books um, a couple weeks ago. Um, but I'm still, I'm still very much um, a newbie here, shaking hands and whatnot. <laughs> I mean, you just went on. You told us that you went on a book tour, right? Or you just got back from a book tour? Or? Well, yeah. So I had I had two weekends of events. Basically, I I uh, did a number of events in uh, Orlando, and um, and then I was off to the the LA Times Festival of Books. Um, so that was that was a lot of fun. I got to go to Kennedy Space Center and and do an event there. And so that was that was kind of I don't know made uh made all the editing and deadlines worth it <laughs> to, to have that day. Well, because you were with an astronaut, right? That's right. Yeah, I oh, got that's to do, so I, cool. Oh, it was it was <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. Yeah, I did a panel with um, astronaut Don Thomas. He was a, a four time shuttle astronaut. Um, really wonderful, kind man. And uh, he he and I talked about we talked about uh, human spaceflight for an hour. Um, I would set as it you up do. as 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 you do. <laughs> um, it was a it was set up as a as a fact versus fiction panel where I would bring up um popular or common tropes in in um you know sort of 
popular depictions of human spaceflight, things like, um, you know, launch being, you know, as easy as sort of, you know, bringing a small plane up or space madness or, um, you know, sleek spacesuits. And then I'd fire it off to him to be like, okay, so what's it, what's it really like to go through these things? And not so much to, I mean, obviously there was quite a bit of like picking apart the actual science of it, but what I was really after was what was your experience? What does it, you know, what does it feel like to be in launch? You know, what does it feel like to look down at earth? Um, those sorts of things. So it was a, it was a wonderful conversation. And, um, and one of those where I sat through the whole thing, just like, Sound smart, just, (laughs) (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, just pinching myself the whole time. You know, I, we spend, you know, in, in our genre so much time talking about space travel in the abstract, um, sitting with someone who has been there, um, who's really been there and can talk about these things where space is not um, just this concept or a story setting for him. It's a place he has been. It's a place he's lived. And uh, it was, mm. it was just such an incredible privilege. How did that event come about? Um, that was done um, through Harper Voyager, who's my, my publisher stateside. Um, they did uh, a sweepstakes um, for, you know, a, the winner would get um, a, Four days in Florida. Um, you know, they'd get to go to Star Wars Celebration. They'd get to go to Kennedy Space Center. Uh, they'd get to hang out with me and they'd get a, a, a library of Harper Voyager books. Um, so I was, I was very happy <laughs> to go along for that ride. See, cause, cause you have a lot of family that's been involved with NASA, right? Were they really, uh, excited to see you up there with the astronaut? Yeah, well, so yeah, so my um my dad, uh, he's retired now, but he was a he was a uh, civilian aerospace engineer. Uh, my mom is an astrobiology educator, um, and she she um does consulting stuff with with NASA and JPL. Um, and uh, my my maternal grandfather, he was a um a, a mathematician. He worked on on Apollo and and later the shuttle. Hmm. Um, so it's it's very much in my family and um. Yeah, when I when I told my folks I was going to Kennedy Space Center, I had two reactions. One was my dad who says, "Well, you're going to go see the Saturn V, right?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, well, dad, I'm there to I'm there to work. Like, I don't know how much time. Well, you got to go see the Saturn. Like, if you go all the way there and you don't see the Saturn V, so I I made time to see the Saturn V. <laughs> and I say that begrudgingly. It was one of the best. It was just an, a monumental experience, but I also knew my dad would kill me if I didn't go. Um <laughs> And then my mom, my mom and I were laughing about it because, you know, I was there that week and the week following, um, you know, she was off to, um, you know, NASA was sending her off to a, an astrobiology conference in Phoenix. So it was kind of like, and that, that for me was a really good feeling, feeling like I, I picked up the family torch in that regard. Hmm. Yeah. So you basically, you were destined to be, become either a science fiction writer or a scientist. You had no other choice, really. I had, <laughs> I had zero other choice. Actually, you know, my parents were, uh, I am the old, I'm, I'm the weird artsy one in the family. I'm the only <laughs> one who didn't, who didn't go into a STEM field, but, um, my parents were very good about that. They were very good about both, um, you know, communicating the importance of scientific literacy without pushing me in that direction. You know, they mm-hmm. were, they, they really just, um, gave, you know, introduced me to, to all the, the stuff out there. So in some ways, yeah, I mean, I did absorb a lot of it through osmosis, but I also was, was encouraged to, to find my own way. So 
It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, because in some ways, <laughs> I look at my childhood and I say, well, yeah, it was inevitable. I grew up loving space. But in some ways, it, it feels also like I chose it on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are other things my parents introduced me to that, that I didn't take interest in. And space was the one where I, I grabbed on hard and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hitching my wagon to this. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, John, I mean, this book has a really, really cool cover by Chris <laughs> Voss, who's this great science fiction illustrator whose books I grew up with. Is there anything to say about how the cover came about? Yeah, I, apparently it was just a, it was not a very interesting story uh, and I didn't have anything to do with it, but Joe Monty, uh, he just like, I don't know, he found out how to get in touch with Foss and just got him to do it. Like, uh, it's like he just hit him at the right time. Like sometimes as, as you do, like sometimes when you land, uh, you know, some great participant to a project like this, like sometimes the timing is just all that matters. And it's like, you just hit it, hit him at the right time. Uh, but you know, he was apparently, he was just like, uh, well, yeah, no, you know, I haven't done a science fiction book cover in a long time. Yeah. Why not? Let's do it. <laughs> so, I mean, that was all there was to it, basically. But, um, yeah, no, I know. I mean, every, like, every time I post the cover, like, uh, I'll get a bunch of people. It's like, oh, wow, that looks like, that looks just like a Chris Foss cover. And I'm like, it is Foss. <laughs> and then they're like, oh my God, their minds are just blown. It's great. That's what Twitter was like, right? When I first posted the cover, yeah. <laughs> people kept saying like, oh man, that looks exactly like one of those old, you know, great Chris Foss covers that I grew up on. <laughs> and you right. could just reply with like, it is. <laughs> right, right, that right. Was, that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I had, uh, when I first talked to, uh, Saga about, about the book and everything, and, and I, I had, uh, although it didn't occur to me stupidly to invite Ron Mars to write a story, uh, I, it did occur to me, uh, at some point to say, oh, hey, maybe we can see if Ron Lim could do the cover. But, you know, uh, I don't know if they actually pursued that, but I mean, this is a very good alternative. <laughs> Okay, well, so, so Toby, I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you have a new Halo book that you just finished. So obviously I have to ask you, how prominently does Dante currently feature in this new book? <laughs> Didn't he die horribly in the last one? <laughs> Yo, dude, like clone, there's cloning, there's time travel. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Kurtley did not make a reappearance. You you uh, don't get to don't don't get that one again. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's uh, that was a one time deal, man. I I killed yeah. I killed Dante Kurtley horribly in that previous book. I killed a number of friends in uh, the Cold Protocol. It's uh, just was a, a fun thing to sneak in there when you're an author having fun. It's it's just a way to get get some of that, get some of your friends in there, and uh, and and uh, if they're they're a close friend, kill them horribly. <laughs> <laughs> He's paid his debt to you, Dave. Get over it. It's yeah, it's, yeah. You're not going to get sorry. it anymore. It's not anymore. You know, no more appearances. But you, you're forever memorialized in, in the Halo <laughs> universe now. So wait, are you, are you going to tell us about the no, new book, though, as if I care? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, oh, there are my dogs barking in the background. That's awesome. Um the uh the the new book is 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 a lot of fun because one of the things about halo is that there is a there's been ah, i'm just gonna i'm just <laughs> there's a great moment in it that is for halo fans kind of fun there's a, a species that was mentioned in passing in one of the sort of uh notes around the first game that they were going to have included in the first game called the shark Oi. And one of the things I got to do in this book is actually sort of uh, bring them into Halo canon and, and put them into a book. And Halo fans are pretty uh, excited about that. So that that got that's a spoiler right there. Sorry, everyone who's listening. But that 
was fun to be given like an entire an entire species to play with and it's fun to play with the video game universe again i've played uh, most of the halo video games uh although my xbox one just died so i'm just crushed but uh so i didn't get a chance to play halo wars 2 because uh it's not booting up at all and i need to get around to getting a new one but uh i've played most of the halo games and had a lot of fun with them so getting a chance to play in the universe a second time has been a lot of fun and most of the fans have been really nice to me in terms of their reactions to this to this one on at least on twitter <laughs> why is it called envoy envoy it's called envoy because there is a ambassador who's been sent from the united earth government and their goal is to sort of like broker a peace between the alien um elites uh if you've ever played the game the uh sanghili and the humans who live there i kind of got a chance to put both alien uh elites and human beings together on a single planet and it is underneath this planet that there's the great uh threat the sharkoi that have been stored for a very long time and they kind of like get back in into action and cause a lot of trouble um and it's also about uh use of violence and and um the power of being an envoy and an ambassador and this character's attempts to solve problems uh, not necessarily through uh always violence but just being clever so it's uh it was it was fun to write it was fun to write it's just it was it was uh crammed into a space that came right after writing two other books so it was uh it's it's been in a very intense two years. I'm so relieved to have it out. It's just sort mm-hmm. of like this huge burden off of my shoulders in terms of not that it was a burden to write, but just in terms of like I had like three projects that just came one right after the other, right after the other. And so for the last two years I've I've written three books and, and I'm just enjoying right now working at my own pace for the first <laughs> time in two years. That sounds really cool. So Toby, so uh I saw that you had a tweet that went viral a day or so ago. What's it like being a, a viral Twitter star? <laughs> well, um, a lot of people yell at you in all caps on the internet. That's what it feels like to be a viral tweet star. <laughs> the uh, tweet that I sent out was just Consumer Reports basically posted something about the high number of bankruptcies has been slashed in half from 2010 to 2017. And they posted a chart that showed the dramatic drop in bankruptcies. It's gone from 1.5 million bankruptcies a year down to 700 and something thousand bankruptcies a year. The very dramatic and sudden shift. And they did some interviews and they talked to some data scientists. And while they don't have an exact number, a large number of that is attributed to the passing of ACA, the, uh, you know, the, in 2010. So the Obamacare, Obamacare. Yeah. And well, I mean, there's some people who don't know that Obamacare is ACA. So that's like really frustrating, isn't it? So as a result of, of, of that, they put together a, a quick article and, and I retweeted it and I just said, basically, not expecting it to go viral. I was just like, look, you know, ACA has cut bankruptcies in half, half, you know, what a headline. And um, that got retweeted. Right now, it's it's 9,500 retweets and still climbing. So it looks like it's going to head towards 10,000. That's a lot of retweets. My previous record was like 290 retweets on something <laughs> I said that was vaguely clever. And to have to have the difference between 290 and 10,000 is um, quite daunting, actually. So, you know, of course, the first thing that happened was, uh, you know, lots of people retweeting and agreeing. Um, 
And like, then, didn't Adam Savage retweet it or something? Friggin' Adam – I mean, talk about, like, winning the geek lottery there. I like, you know, <laughs> like uh, that was just wild. I mean, just – they're just people retweeting it who I read in regular – it was really – let me just say this. It was really strange to be reading my regular Twitter feeds and to <laughs> see my, you know, thing pop up. You're just like, ah, what is happening here? This is so strange. So, yeah, there was a lot of blowback. I, I wrote an article to follow up on it um, because a lot of people were upset. They said – a lot of people assumed I wrote this article for Consumer Reports and so they were challenging me on the data and getting really angry at me for having written hmm. this and really angry at me for manipulating the data. And so I you know, kind of dug into the data a little bit more because a lot of people were arguing directly with me instead of Consumer Reports and I kind of was ending up in the position of having to defend Consumer Reports, which is really weird because normally I just pay them a lot of money and get that little digest and they do great research for me and keep me away from buying crappy things. So the uh, interesting thing about it was that, um, yeah, they definitely showed a chart that had 2010 to 2017, which as everyone knows, like if you chop off the axis, that's slightly, you know, you can prove your point by manipulating a chart. And so a lot of people started sending me charts that showed 2007 to 2017, where uh, the rate had been under a million and had gone up to 1.5 million and then back down to 700,000 to show that I was manipulating data and being a very horrible, horrible, uh, liberal, uh, I think the word libtard was what, uh, <laughs> kept being used. So, fake news. <laughs> well, fake news was like, okay, so, so the, the responses were libtard, fake news, uh, manipulating the chart and correlation isn't causation, which was the most common one, actually. Um, a number of people just tweeted at me, correlation is not causation and that's it. And then I would try to get them to engage and they would just like not respond. Um, so I found this really great comic online that I posted up onto my website that shows a kid standing in front of a big flat screen TV with a remote puncturing it, you know, and he's talking to his mom. You know, she looked real mad at him. Grr. And he's like, correlation is not causation. <laughs> <laughs> um so, yeah, I had to go back and find charts that had bankruptcy data that go all the way back to the 1970s and post it for people that showed that bankruptcy had gone all the way up to 2.1 million bankruptcies a year until they passed legislation during the Bush administration in 2005 that kind of tried to make bankruptcy legal, right? They just kind of like said, you know, uh, if you, uh, they, not illegal, but they basically radically made it harder for you to go through bankruptcy. And so 2006 and 2007, the number of bankruptcies dropped from 2.1 million down to 700,000 just because the uh, Bush administration made it uh, much harder and sort of put these artificial caps on bank bankruptcy law that hadn't been there before to just force it down. And from 2007 uh, all the way through 2010, over this like two-year period, basically bankruptcies just screamingly accelerate from 700,000 a year back up to 1.5 million, and we're headed for 2.1 million again. And we know from research done by various consumer agencies and places like Consumer Reports and bankruptcy court laws that people have studied that oh, somewhere between um, uh, prior to ACA that somewhere around 50% of all bankruptcies are medically related. It's remarkably the most common uh, reason for bankruptcy among personal bankruptcies. And so we know that that what happened was that it just went screaming back up to to what it was before. Um, when it hit 1.5 million. And then since ACA over the last seven years, it's just been steadily dropping and dropping and dropping each year. So yeah, I spent a lot of time just basically having to try to engage people with that, uh, which I didn't have to do, but I figured maybe one out of every 20 of those people who called me a libtard was maybe amenable to looking at facts. I don't know. 
Well, and, and this is really personal to you, Toby, right? Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is incredibly personal to me. And today, as we're recording, this is a very frustrating day because, you know, I, I went to a town hall meeting recently for my own member of Congress and stood up and asked him the question, you know, what are we, those of us with pre-existing conditions going to do if this AHCA passes, which is, you know, Trump care. And he promised me to my face that, you know, people who you know, uh, had pre-existing conditions, we're not going to get screwed over by any legislation he backed. And what was passed today uh, basically kind of screws people with pre-existing conditions. It tries to force us off into uh, high-risk pools, which will dramatically increase uh, our cost of insurance. Or um, actually, with pre-existing conditions, in some cases, they're going to not offer us insurance. Before I w- became a full-time writer, I was not able to access healthcare on the private insurance market because I have a genetic heart condition. This isn't something that I got from leading a bad life (laughs) or because I'm a bad person. Um, I'm I'm born with it. Like my grandfather had it. My mom has it. I have it. And as long as I take decent care of myself, which I do, uh, I will probably not die of it. I'll probably die of something else. My doctor says, you know, Hey, it's probably more likely you'll die of cancer, but there's a chance this might kill you. So it, I have a pre-existing condition and there's nothing I can do about it. It's genetic. And that means that in this country, um, as a result of the political situation we have, I might lose my health care through no fault of my own very soon here. So it is, it is extremely personal to me. And then the secondary thing is that like, um, we have to make some decisions about my children. Um, originally I really wanted to screen them, uh, do genetic screening to see if they had it so that we could make, um, some good choices about whether they can be in sports or what they can do uh, moving forward in life and whether or not we need to monitor and be careful about this. Uh, now I'm not going to get that screening because I don't want to know. I don't, uh, for their sake, as they grow up and we, and, and when they'll have healthcare, I don't want it on their record that they have a pre-existing condition. So right now we will just leave that off the table and that's frustrating and it shouldn't be like that. And it sucks and it's, it's unfortunate. Um, and it makes me very, very angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just looking at my Twitter and Facebook feed, I mean, every, you know, all, all my, you know, so many of my friends are writers and people are just, you know, writers are so screwed des- right now. Despondent. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, so many people who have small businesses or who are writers or who are freelancers. Um, I, I, I don't know, uh, uh, Becky, you said you were doing freelance work. I, 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 do you, are you affected by this? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm writing uh, fiction full time now, but, um, yeah, I mean, it affects me hugely, you know, um, you know, writing is my business and, um, I just, uh, my, my hopes are, are not currently, uh, very high <laughs> that I'll be able to, um, I mean, I'll, I'll keep writing for sure, but it's going to, this, if the changes they're talking about go through, it will make my job a lot harder. Not my job person, not the day to day, but my ability to do this job. Yeah. Um, and, and to go to the doctor, which is, um, a, a, a good thing to do from time to time. It is a good. And, 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 and it's not just us freelancers that are going to get hit by this bill, but I just discovered that. What this bill does is also it takes off uh, lifetime caps for people with employer insurance. So if if you uh, right before ACA, um, over fifty percent of people uh, who had health insurance through their employers had lifetime caps on them. So if you happen to get cancer and you went through a million dollars worth of treatment, you would then from then on 
uh, not be able to get covered. You'd have to pay for everything from that million on out of pocket, out of your own pocket, which is why we were having so many bankruptcies. So it's not just us freelancers who are about to get royally slammed by this, but it's every, it's, it's, it's a lot of people in this country. And uh, that's stunning to me. I mean, one of our, our listeners, uh, Nicholas Rogers, posted on Facebook, if I have the details right, that his daughter needed a heart transplant shortly after she was born and, you know, went through all the, you know, hit the lifetime cap before she was hmm. one month old or something. Um, wow. you know. Yeah, that the lifetime caps uh, and and the pre-existing conditions thing, uh, they're they're just going to be brutal to people uh, when this if, you know, if it passes the Senate and it is. It is, it is a cruel and, and horrible thing that they've done. It's, and, and like you said, very dispiriting, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, I, (laughs) it's just wow. John, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, I'm affected by it too. Uh, we have, we have, uh, insurance through the ACA and had been turned down prior to the ACA, uh, for having pre-existing conditions and things. So, um, but yeah, I don't know, man. It's like, it's really hard to even look at the news and, and everything, uh, with, with all this kind of stuff going on. And, and I mean, that's not even the end of it. I mean, there's so many other, I mean, that's, you know, there's so many other things that are happening there. It's like, it's hard to 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 devote all my outrage to one thing because there's all these other things <laughs> yeah. that are happening. So it's like, uh, and I, that feels like it's probably a strategy, but yeah. um, it's uh, it's really troubling. You know, I mean, hopefully it won't get this won't get through the Senate because it it uh, it got through the House, but then it still has to get through the Senate, and it might not, and they might change it in the Senate, and uh, it's all it's all stupidly complicated. Um, although, as our president said, no one knew health insurance was this complicated. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, anyway, it's just, it's, yeah, it's really depressing. Um, well, as so. a, as a writer, I, I remember being, you know, I, I, I started, uh, getting into, into the genre heavily, you know, 2000 to 2006, as I started publishing short stories and then my first novel. And I remember at some of the conventions I was at just talking to all these full-time writers who were ahead of me and they, you know, so many of them didn't have healthcare and, and, and before 2010, there were so many, bankruptcies and there were so many writers who lost everything and and were you know needing needing help it was so common and there were so many stories that it was it was really dispiriting i remember at that time and one of the most common conversations prior to 2010 was consistently like how can freelancers get healthcare how can we protect ourselves and for this brief and shining moment from 2010 you know to 2017, the seven-year period, uh, was an explosion of writer friends of mine taking the risk to go full-time, to create more, to to make more, to do more, because they had the ability to buy health insurance. Yeah, so it's just, it's like like you guys are saying, it's depressing, and I would much rather be talking about evil space gods, but... Hmm. Any day. You know, any this day. is imp- this, you know, this is important stuff. And if you if you're listening to this and you're not on the same side of this as us, I would just really strongly encourage you to just listen, just seek out stories of people like like us and our writer friends because these are all real people. And well, the most brutal it, thing about that 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 viral tweet was just how many. I, I have to say, the hardest thing psychologically, and the reason I lost most of yesterday 
to uh, engaging with people instead of, of actually I was supposed to have read cosmic powers yesterday and, and, and I've read all the stories so I could sound really erudite and up on everything. But instead um, I was reading everyone's tweets telling me about all the, the bankruptcies they'd gone through and all the horrible choices they'd had to make as a result of these staggering health bills and, and all the things that they'd lost because of bankruptcies. And it was just, uh, it was just a psychic storm of just pain that got dumped on me. And that wasn't malicious. I mean, I can deal with people who disagree with me kind of calling me a libtard. I don't care. I have oppositional defiant disorder. Whenever someone <laughs> does something like that, it makes me just delightful. And now you're never getting any treatment for that. Yeah, I know. I, I just, yeah. uh, I, I just get delightfully happy when people get angry with me for some reason. I have to actually really be careful to control that, uh, so that I don't like, you know, purposefully like try to get people outraged at me. But, the the things that really really hit me hard were the number of people who were just had gone through tremendous pain and suffering and financial collapse as a result of of pre-2010 healthcare conditions and the way that the things were set up against them and i came very close to that situation myself when i ended up in the hospital for quite a while when we discovered that i had this genetic heart defect i mean in end of 2008 early 2009 i racked up some serious medical debt and, you know, stared bankruptcy in the face and, and worked my ass off to get out of it and pay everything off myself because I just come from that blue collar background. I had like, you know, millionaire friends who kind of back channeled to me and they're just like, yeah, just declare bankruptcy. Um, but I paid everything off and am still suffering from the fallout from that, that long period of paying all that debt off. And, uh, knowing that there were lifetime caps, knowing that there were yearly caps was just this tremendous, tremendous sense of security that that started up in 2010 the knowledge that i would never have to look at 30 40,000 worth of medical bills um in any given year yeah all right so uh <laughs> yeah let's let's talk about well to else. circle yeah. all that back to art it's easier to create art when you're not terrified yeah of of, of all that and um and and uh art art is fun art is fun to make Let's let's go there. <laughs> yeah, the, the the only solace I can take is that everyone who voted yes for the for the repeal will someday face judgment at the hands of the living tribunal. <laughs> <laughs> can I just say, John? Also, one of the stories I'm actually looking forward to reading in here um, to to go on on a happy note is uh, you published a story by Linda Nagata, Diamond in the World Breaker, and mm -hmm. I love it when Linda does uh, really far future crazy far out there stuff um, her novel memory which i think she's uh, now has the rights to and and has up on amazon but i read it back when it had just come out from tor is one of my favorite sort of far future sense of wonder uh, mm -hmm. magical is it magic science fantasy is it magic is it deep technology what what am i reading about here uh, world building books memory is just one of my faves in that genre and very much in kind of the cosmic powers tradition if any of the readers like some of the stuff that they're reading. That's another book that I would kind of throw out there as being worth your while. Uh, Memory by Linda Nagata is, is a tremendous uh, fun read in terms of that sense of wonder, science fantasy kind of feel. There's actually a really interesting idea in the Linda Nagata story, which is that the, the civilization is ruled by this AI and the AI has run all these simulations and concluded that too much peace and prosperity is bad for um, you know innovation and <laughs> progress and stuff. And so there's a certain level of crime and terrorism that mm -hmm. you know the, the ai basically like hires criminals and terrorists to keep society on its toes kind of <laughs> um so maybe that's an upside to not having too much peace and prosperity <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, all right. So uh, I don't know, Becky, any any final thoughts about any of the cosmic powers kind of stuff we've been talking about? Um, we've we've covered a, a whole lot of stuff here. Uh, space is fun and you should read this book. That's <laughs> that's what I've got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if there's ever a time for escapism, that's fun. Now is it. So like grab this book and just disappear for a few hours. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, that's the thing. People talk about escapism disparagingly. No, um, but escapism yeah. is is so valuable. It's one of the most valuable tools we have. It's it's respite, you know. It's it's a break from from you know even even when the news isn't terrible to look at. Just the you know the everyday and and getting to to take your mind somewhere else to um to imagine things like you know an AI who has to hire criminals or um you know what is it that makes us human? All of these questions I think are. Um, I don't know. They're for me at least. They're 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 what nourish me. And um, no, I so I, I see I see a book of stories like this is as nothing but a good thing. I think Becky's so totally just dead on with that. I I had a really tough childhood, and you know, when whenever I was a literature major, and and my professors would talk disparagingly about escape escapism, sometime I I just had this response, this immediate response of just you don't understand. Like I never ever ever would have made it through my childhood without just all that escapism that I had. That was my my rock for my my escape, the ability to escape just uh helped me just travel through every every sort of sling and arrow that was thrown at me because I knew that at any given point I could crack open a book and dip into the pages and just go to somewhere far away you know somewhere uh different uh, and just experience a sense of wonder and and that's that's that that just sort of like you said uh, Becky used the word nourishment and, you know that just basically nourished me through through any sort of uh, situation I was in all right, cool. So, John, final thought. Uh, well, yeah, I just hope everyone uh, goes out and checks out this book. And, and if you do, you find some uh, solace in it, some nourishment in it. Um, if you want to learn more about it, just go to johnjosephadams.com slash cosmic. And there's a couple sample stories you can read there and you can read all about it and see where to buy it and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you enjoy this type of science fiction, just, uh, you know, try to support it and try to talk about it online and tell your friends to make sure that people find out about it so that we can uh, do more stuff like that. Because uh, as everyone's been saying, it's like, hey, you know, even if it's not uh, something that's serious and, and seemingly directly related to the world at hand, uh, there's lots of uh, stuff to be found even in something escapist like this. All right, cool. And so, oh, and also, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Two comes out tomorrow, so I'll be Woo-hoo! there or tonight at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll be seeing it tomorrow. So, yeah, likewise, I've got my tickets for tomorrow. <laughs> nice. All right, cool. So, yeah, so uh, there's a lot to look forward to. We've got cosmic powers. We've got Guardians of the Galaxy Two, and so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Tobias Bakel, and Becky Chambers. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, always good to be here. And that was our panel. So, big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Tobias Bakel, and Becky Chambers for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jens Blega, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to thank Nick Oakley and Jim Whitehead, who both just increased their pledge amounts. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, 
Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.